All right, we're in Mark, and we're studying the Gospel of Mark for, for a season here, and today we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And sometimes we hit some longer passages, this is one of those, but I really wanted to read it to you because it's a powerful, powerful picture, and the Word of God, which we're going to study here for the next few minutes, is what is alive and active. And so sometimes it helps me, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading scripture, it helps me to know what I'm looking for, like to have a question in my mind, something as simple as, what are the names of God given in this book? So I may read through the whole book of Luke and just be thinking about what are the names of God that I'm looking for, or I'll be looking for all different kinds of things. And so here's what I want you to do as I read this passage. I want you to engage with me, and I want you to be thinking about what is going on in the minds of everybody here. What are they thinking about? So there's a ton of characters in these passages. I want you to think about what's, what are they thinking about? What information do they have that's driving them? All right, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came out one of the rulers of the sin of God, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and alive. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus Perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowds and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing that, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, and James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, and said, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, 
I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've come a long way in my leadership over the years. I'm extremely grateful to many people who have poured into me and invested in me. One in particular is a woman named Dana Tomlin. About 12 years ago, she coached me and equipped me in how to have difficult conversations, something that we all love to have. And I avoided them like most people, but she uh, has a really cool story that I won't share in this moment where I was able to work with her for about six months, and she just trained me up in how to have hard conversations, which we all have all the time. I want to share with you two of the principles that she taught me, because I think they help inform where we're going this morning. And so there are many principles that we talk about in how to have difficult conversations, but the first one is this. There is information that I have that you need. Now, all of us like this principle, when we think about having hard conversations, we all like to think, I have information that you have. In fact, most of us, when we have hard conversations, think this is the only principle that there is when we're having hard conversations. I have information that you have, you need, and if you knew the information that I had, then we wouldn't have any conflict anymore. We would be good to go. It would be all solved, and we would be fine, which leads us to the second principle, which is much harder for us to accept, and that is this. You have information that I need. You have information that I need. It's harder to accept that at times, isn't it? Maybe it's because we like to be in control. Maybe it's because we think we're the smartest one in the room. And when we're looking at anything in every situation, we know what should happen and how it should play out, that there's nothing really for us to learn. We like things our way. <laughs> and we find ourselves often saying, if you would just do what I want and see things the way I see them, then they would be resolved. Just sidebar note, I would encourage you and challenge you the next time you're having a difficult conversation or in a conflict, remind your heart there's information that the other person has that I need. In some ways, Mark is teaching us these principles today. In order to see it, he's sharing two stories that impact each other. In fact, Mark does this several times in his book. People call it Mar the Markian sandwich that he uses two stories inside of each other so that, that helps shape something important. And so we have this story where we start with Jairus and we end with Jairus, and then we have this woman who's got a disease in the middle. And Mark puts them together in a sandwich to help us reflect on and think about something significant. And what he's doing here is, you know, basically the zest of the outside of the sandwich 
makes the inside taste better, and the greatness of the inside of the sandwich actually impacts and flavors the outside of it. And so this morning, we're going to take these together and see what we can learn. And I think what Mark wants us to see when it comes to our encounter with Jesus is principle number two. He has information that you and I need. Sometimes we don't see it, but he, in this passage, shows up with these two people and says, there's information that I have that you need. And so we're going to look at three perspectives today. The first is this, the information that they have. The second is the information they need. And the third is the action steps to take. So the information they have, the information they need, and the action steps to take. So the information they have. Let's start with Jairus. Jairus was a ruler in the synagogue, it says in verse 22. Then came out one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now, that phrase, to be a ruler of the synagogue, is not that significant of a person per se. It would be kind of parallel to a mayor in St. Charles. No offense to any mayors. But the, that, there, that you know, there's multiple mayors in St. Saint, in, in Saint Charles, and, and they have some influence in our community, but that's, you know, they're not big public figures necessarily. And so that's who this guy is. Jairus has some significance, but not that big a deal. And what we would know is that Jairus also is being smart in the way that he rules. So he understands that there's this guy, Jesus, he's starting to gain some fame, but like any political figure, he would want to stay a little bit back from Jesus. He doesn't want the Romans to come into his town and stir anything up. So he doesn't really have any interest or need to know Jesus or what's going on with him. He's heard of Jesus, but he's keeping his distance. Until, verse 23, we see that things change for Jairus. Something has happened. Something has gone on in his life that's causing him to throw away caution and he now goes to this man, Jesus, who he's heard about, and he falls to his feet because he has this information. He knows something about Jesus that makes him think he could have the power to change my situation. So Jairus goes from avoiding Jesus to DEFCON 5, if you will, and he's hoping that Jesus will come quickly, that Jesus will respond quickly to his request and raise and fix, not raise, he's thinking he can fix this situation with his daughter. I'm wondering if you've ever gone to Jesus in crisis and you've said, come fix this now, Jesus. Come solve this problem now. And you wished maybe that he would just walk a little faster to the situation. Jesus, my marriage is failing. Come fix this. Jesus, my job is killing me. Come fix this. Jesus, my heart is breaking. Come fix this. Jesus, my addiction is destroying me. Come fix this. That cry of, Jesus, I have information you need. I'm hurting here. And once you know this information, 
you'll fix this. But Jesus has information that Jairus needs too. We'll get there in a second. Let's talk about the woman if we can. In the middle of this journey to an almost dead 12-year-old girl, a woman who's suffered for 12 years, don't miss the connection there, that Mark makes it very clear that the girl was 12 and the woman was suffering for 12 years, showing the length of both of their situations here. And she'd gone, as it says in the passage here, to many doctors and had spent all of her money and not only had things stayed the same, but they'd gotten worse. Maybe the remedies or what they'd been offering to her was actually causing her situation to get worse. And she is in crisis. She needs help. And in a similar way, she had heard of this man, Jesus. And and so she goes to him because of her ailment. Now the information she has is if I just touch the garments of Jesus, the passage tells us, I'll be healed. Now it's interesting, what does that mean? Was she superstitious? It could be. Did she think maybe that this was a person who had some powers and she had some superstition? We don't know. Also, it could be that she actually thinks he's holy and that this idea of the holy can make the unclean clean, that that's what's driving her, that she wants to just touch Jesus because of how beautiful and powerful he is. Again, we don't really know. It could be either or. But she touches his garment as, and is immediately healed. Side note, all except for one time in scriptures and for specific reasons, every time Jesus touches someone to be healed, it happens immediately. And this is the moment where everything changes. Jesus stops and he looks at his disciples and he says, Someone touched me. Who touched me? And the disciples are like, Jesus. Are you kidding? There's a bazillion people around here and lots of people are touching you. And, and J- we got to go to Jairus' daughter. She's about to die. What are, what are you doing stopping? So we have Jairus in this crazy situation where he's desperate for Jesus to move quicker and a woman who is desperate to have her ailment fixed. And, you know, I think it took a long time for the disciples to get this. And it might take us a long time to get there too. But Jesus had some information that Jairus and the woman and the disciples didn't have, but that they desperately needed. And the problem was, and the problem oftentimes with us, is that we think we know it all. We think we know what the best resolution is. We think we know what the outcome should be. This is where we get to the part where we see what is the information that they really needed. Four things I'd like to point out from this story about the information they needed. The first is this. Jesus is here to do so much than just heal. When we're in crisis, it's, it's usually what we just want. You know, Jesus solved this problem. Jesus heal me. Just fix this. 
And we see something incredibly powerful in this story that, that Jesus actually does. He, he heals the woman, and we know the end, that he raises this little girl from the dead. But at the same time, the, the point here is we, Jesus actually shows us, and we may miss it if we, if we look too quickly, that it's not just the healing that he's interested in. In fact, it's something quite different. So, so to use some uh, medical terms here, the girl who was almost dead and eventually find out had died has an acute problem. It, ne- it needs to be solved immediately. And the, the woman has what we'd call a chronic problem. It doesn't need to be solved per se immediately. She's been suffering for 12 years, so you'd think in this moment, okay, well, if you've got someone who's about to die versus someone who's been bleeding for 12 years, you'd go, okay, well, let's, you can hold off on this for a few more hours or another day. We'll come back and solve your problem, and then I'm going to go take care of the most immediate problem. But it's not what Jesus has in mind here. You see, the woman wanted to get healed and run. Let's go back to her just for a second. She's not named in the passage. Jairus is named, not her. We know really nothing about her except this, that she wanted to come and touch Jesus and then run away. But Jesus makes her stand up. Why? I mean, let's go back to the image of this picture here just for a second. Who likes public speaking? I do. I like public speaking. (laughs) But we would say, as studies show, that most people, one of their greatest fears next to death is public speaking. And so here's what Jesus does. He takes this woman who has been suffering for 12 years, who knows how alienated she is from the culture, who knows how much she has even engaged, she's thrown away all her money, the doctors haven't helped her, they made it worse, and Jesus now, and remember that the disciples said, Jesus, there's a bazillion people around you right now. So we know that, there's, how many is that? I don't know, more more than 10? I mean, the disciples were there, so that's 12. So I mean, what is, maybe this many people? So imagine I'm standing here in the middle of the room and you guys are all hovering around me and then I'm like, hey, who touched me? And Jesus makes this woman get up in the middle of the crowd and say, I did. Why? Because Jesus is interested in way more than just healing her. Look at what Jesus says to her. This depth of this verse and this sentence, there's so much in it. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus is saying, I want to give you so much than just meeting your needs. I want to call you daughter. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to know you. I know the desperate need of your heart is to be healed, but the deeper need of your heart is to be known and to know me. So he wanted her to stand up and say, it was me, so he could say, you're my daughter. I love you healed 
Don Carson, a famous preacher and commentary writer, he wrote this. I loved it. Jesus takes this encounter from a power encounter to a personal encounter. She wants a miracle. He wants a meeting. She wants the answer to her problems. He wants to engage her with respect to her faith. My friends, the information that we need, no matter what you think you need from God, is actually that he wants to give you so much more. He, he wants to give you a relationship with himself, an intimate encounter with the creator of the world. When you come to Jesus today with whatever your crisis is, I want to invite you to see that, that there's something beyond the immediacy of your crisis that is the deeper longing of our hearts And part of the reason why we can trust this from Jesus is the second thing that I want to point out, and that is this. Jesus is impacted by our sadness. Mark is called the action gospel. He, it's partly because he doesn't actually have a lot of words from Jesus. There's not a lot of teaching from Jesus in his book. And what that means is when Jesus speaks, as always in any gospel, but especially in Mark, we should pay very careful attention to the words that he's using. And Mark makes some very powerful statements and uses language that should help us understand how Jesus wants to engage. I'm going to jump a little bit ahead in the story here to point this out. Because how he talks to this woman and how he talks to the girl who has died are important. I mean, in Mark 5, 34, we just spent some time talking about this, that he refers to her as daughter. The word, the depth of that word is actually a term of endearment. And you can sense in this the tone of Jesus of how intimate and connected. And, and, and I would argue that he's feeling this sense of sadness for her and her suffering for all these years that now he's able to say to her, be at peace. Go in peace. The second thing we see, it's a really interesting part of Mark. In verse 41, it says, Taking her by her hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, let's sit in that just for a second here. So it's Aramaic is the language, is what Jesus was speaking, but the New Testament is written in Greek. And so when we see the words that Jesus was saying, Mark is writing them in Greek. But here, for some reason, he says he spoke these Aramaic words. And, and we should ask why. Why does Mark want us to hear the words of Jesus in this moment. And I think we could all understand this. You've probably been in conversations before where you want to quote something literally because of the power and the impact of it. So, you, you know, we have, you know, we say, they literally said this, or I literally said that. We have this in our family too. So when I proposed to Dondra, there was a sentence that I worked on that we wanted to quote over and over and over. And so my statement to her, or that, that sounds cold, uh, when I got down on one knee, I said, uh, 
with the blessing of God and the permission of your parents, Dondra Marie Robinson, will you marry me? And when we tell the story, we say that sentence because there's something beautiful and powerful for us in that, that this intimate request of Dondra, will you marry me? And what's funny about that story is the very, even though I said it, what she said was, wait, wait, did you really ask my parents? Because that mattered to her. Which I had, and I snuck away and got and did it all. Anyway. Mark wants us to see that in that moment when Jesus was taking the hand of this young girl who had just died, he wants us to feel the beauty and the power of that moment, that the only way that he could do it was to say exactly what he said. And Jesus said, Talitha kumi. And I bet every time Mark wrote that or read that or thought about it, the chills went through his brain, picturing Jesus say, I feel your pain, young girl. Arise. We often see this in the life of Jesus. His compassion is so moving. Why? Maybe it's because it's often that we rarely encounter that in our lives. We don't find that people really care about our sadness or our difficulties. I just finished reading a book called Everything Sad is Untrue. I would definitely recommend it to you. It's, let me tell you just a tiny bit about it. It's a memoir of an Iranian man telling his story of how his mother became a believer and then they moved to Oklahoma from Iran as refugees. And he tells it from a perspective of a 12-year-old. So it's kind of a little bit spastic and some, you know, funny language in there. And at one point, he's tell, he tells a lot of stories about his family and memories. And at one point, he tells this seemingly scary love story that has struggle and pain and death. And he makes this observation about life and stories. And I want to just read this paragraph to you. And remember, this is a 12-year-old. So he writes this. Now you know how Persian love stories go. It's okay to be scared. When you ask people in Oklahoma how great their grandparents, how, how their great-grandparents died, almost all of them say cancer or heart disease, or if you get lucky, kicked in the head by a horse. Other than the horse one, you have to agree with them that cancer and heart disease are totally normal and respectable ways to eat it. But if you say poisoned by a blood doctor in a blood feud, yeah, that gets you looks. Courteous looks like, oh, isn't he precious? And only then would you regret being agreeable when they told you their story. Why should you believe them? How would they know that their great-grandparent died of cancer? It's just the story someone told them. They weren't there, but they just expect everyone to take their word for it. 
And people do because the story is boring. But nobody cares the second after they hear it. It goes, cancer. Oh, yeah, and he was young, too, only 47. Wow. Want to go get tacos for lunch? Don't be fooled by the wow. That was an I don't care wow. People are like that. They are immune to the sadness of others. My friends, the reason why the compassion of Jesus is so moving is because he is not immune to your sadness. He's drawn to it. And he wants to say to you, my son, my daughter, Talitha Kumi, arise. We need that information. Jesus wants you to experience that. The third thing we see here, which helps us with both of those points, is the power of faith in this story. Jesus works through our faith. Mark points out that for both of them, the woman and Jairus, it is faith that is the conduit to his power. See that in verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. And then he says in verse 36 to Jairus, after hearing that his daughter had died, he says, do not fear, only believe. Mark, in some ways, is contrasting the faith of the woman and Jairus. Jairus is named, the woman is unnamed. Jairus is honored, the woman is disgraced. Jairus appeals for someone else, the woman appeals for herself. Jairus appeals with respect. He gets down on his knees before the teacher. She sneaks up to touch him. Jairus has a bold persistence in putting aside the things that he could get him in trouble. She is ashamed, lacking confidence. Which is the better faith? Two interesting displays of faith here. I would argue the point that Mark wants us to see is that, what it, that it wasn't the type of faith, but who their faith was in. That, that what Jesus is saying is he's reminding them that your, your faith could look respectable and it could look raw and ugly and uncomfortable. And Jesus is saying, as long as your faith is placed in the right place, that's what matters. That encourages me. 
I hope it does you. That we have moments all the time in our lives where, yeah, it's good, we can come, we feel respectable, we trust Jesus, and then we have those moments where everything's falling apart and we're just desperate for Jesus to do something. And what he's saying is, just see me as the one with the power. It's not your faith per se that gives any power to it. It's the place your faith is in. And so where should and why should our faith be in Jesus? Well, it's because Jesus has the ultimate answer. Maybe you heard this story before. <laughs> Maybe right now you're just thinking about the Super Bowl. I don't know what's going on in your minds. But I, I want to bring you just back in for this last thought here. It, it's a little bit unfair because we know what's about to happen. And I wonder if you could with me, just for a second, there's, there's two ways that we can engage with this, this passage. I mean, put yourself in the mind of Jairus just for a moment. When, when he's told, your daughter is dead, and then Jesus says, just believe. Let's remember that there is nothing in his brain that is thinking, Oh, he's going to raise her from the dead. I mean, that isn't even, not an option. Not even close to an option. And for those of you who have been in those moments where something happens to your kid and, and, and you're having in that moment of fear and anxiety, when somebody says, just believe, you want to punch them. I mean, it does not help. And so, I mean, just, just for a moment, can you put yourself in the mind of Jairus? Now, now, maybe let's also put ourselves in the mind of someone who is reading this for the very, very, very first time. And they're reading along, and they're seeing, okay, Jesus, he's, he's coming to, dis, he's going to disrupt people. He's a new king. He's doing all this stuff. Okay, wow, it's interesting. And then last week, we talked about how he calmed a storm. Oh, that's unique. I've never heard of anyone doing that. And then we have this moment where it says, Jesus healed a demon and cast, or healed a man who had a demon possessed and cast all those into some pigs and they were running down a mountain. And then we read this thing about where Jesus healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And there should be this stirring in you when Jesus says, Don't fear, just believe that you're going, Whoa. I mean, what can he do with a dead girl? Jesus had information that Jairus needed. Death is not welcome in his presence. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, death, you have no power here. And the one who has true power, true control, he has come and he wants to say, arise. He wants to say it to Jairus' daughter, he wants to say it to Jairus, he wants to say it to the disciples, he wants to say it to the woman, and he wants to say it to us. That he has the power over death to resurrect souls and bring new life and new hope, that he's not just a magician or a good teacher or a good healer. When we put our faith in this Jesus, he has the power to overcome the greatest enemy, the only enemy that any person cannot defeat, and that is Death itself. And so he leans down in the most humble and beautiful expression of faith and he says, 
Talitha Kumin. My little girl, arise. And they were overcome with amazement. So, I mean, if you thought, Brian, they thought he was going to raise from the dead. No, they did not. They were like, what just happened? I can't, Im- I mean, you, for those of you who know me for a while, I can get a little animated when I'm excited. I like to get animated and excited. I can't imagine what it would have been like in that moment. Whatever you think you know about your life and your story and your journey and whatever we believe that we need, this is the information we need. The ultimate answer is for us to put our faith in the one who can say, arise. The action steps to take are simple, I would argue, We have them in our mission. The first is this, believe, (laughs) to believe. To believe that Jesus truly can defeat death. And we do that by repenting and putting our faith in Jesus. That we, we, we turn from, we confess to God, I feel like I have all the information. And so our confession is to say, God, I know I don't have all the information. I trust that you do. That's repentance and faith. And then the second thing is to become the gospel. Verse 43, it says, And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And we talked about this several weeks ago, and I would just remind us that the reason why Jesus is doing this is because he wants people to be fully convinced that he has the power to defeat sin and death. So he's saying, just, I need you to wait. I don't want people to just come to me because I'm a healer. Because why? Because I'm here to do so much more than just heal. And, and so he's saying, just, let's just wait. Because I am going to put the final stamp on sin and the final stamp on death. And I'm going to say it is finished and offer to everyone the invitation to arise. So he doesn't want us to lose sight of what he has come to do. But here's the beauty of this moment. We are on the backside of the story. (laughs) We do know that he defeated death. We do know that it has happened. So he says now to his disciples, in the same way that God has sent me, so now I send you. And so the invitation to all of us is to do what? He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's our cry to the world that I've been resurrected and you can be resurrected too. That we have this power, this beautiful application of declaration and demonstration. That we go into the world to demonstrate the power of a resurrected life and we declare that that invitation is open to all. And my friends, today, if you've never taken that step to put your faith in the one who desperately wants to say to you, arise. It's a simple, simple confession of the heart. Whether it's respectable faith or ugly faith. To trust in the one who can say to us all, Talitha.
kumin. Arise, my child. Let's pray. Almighty God, will we experience the power of your resurrection now, today, in this moment? Help us know that Jesus truly was the one who came to defeat sin and death. And like Jonathan prayed, Father, how easy it is for us to know and not experience it in our hearts. May the beauty of these stories not just be stories, but may they turn us to you in faith. Father, whether that's respectable or ugly, whether it's making sense to us or we're just in a cry of desperation, we long for your response to us to be, arise, my child. And so, Father, even right now, even in this very moment, we invite your Holy Spirit to resurrect us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.